Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the following on podcast from Talk Sport. I'm John Norman and I hope you enjoyed this week's Cricket Collective featuring a brilliant lockdown interview between Neil Manthorpe and the legendary Dale Stain. If you haven't heard it, then please do. The Cricket Collective is on Talk Sport 2 between 6 and 7pm every Tuesday night. But if you do miss it, a podcast on the following on channel will always be available. Now, it's been another week devoid of cricket being played, but that hasn't stopped a stream of top guests appearing across the TalkSport network. From Nasser Hussain on with Freddie Flintoff on Breakfast, to the gaffer Alex Stewart on with Goffey and Adrian Durham on Drive. But let's start with the serious stuff. Legendary umpire in Gould with Hawksby and Jacobs talking about his new book, Gunner, My Life in Cricket. Ian Gould, he's off the international list. Uh, he's been uh, travelling the world in recent years as a, as a top umpire. I think he was hoping to do games domestically this season, but of course that's not to be. But um, he has written a very fine uh, autobiography uh, called Gunner, and he joins us now. Ian, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. But many happy memories of watching you as a kid uh, at uh, Middlesex. That great side, Titmus, Selvey, Gat, and uh, lots of fine players in there. We were good there. We used to win a lot of games. Yes, we were very good then. That uh, outstanding team. Um, it was, you know, a pleasure leaving club cricket and going straight into that changing room and playing with those guys. Of immense talent, immense talent. It's a really good side. A very good side. Yeah, I remember it well too. Uh, Ian, what, just explain why? Where does the nickname Gunner come from? Well, in my younger days, um, I used to play football at Slough, uh, and I used to be uh, surprisingly a goalkeeper. As many people know me, that I'm not exactly the tallest. Um, and I went from Slough to join Arsenal as an apprentice for, for three years. So it's uh, come from there, really. Okay, yeah, you right. goalkeepers and, and wicketkeepers. Yeah, of course. It was Bertie Me said you weren't tall enough. Is that right? Yeah, he's correct. People are still telling me that now. But I was actually, <laughs> to be honest with you, I was very good in five-a-side games. That was the only crossbar I could touch. So, um, yeah, I was I was a bit of a legend in five-a-side games. What, what was more yeah, difficult? Would you say? Sorry, Andy. I was going to say what, goalkeeping Sorry. or wicketkeeping. What's the what's the no, what's the uh, hardest? Keeping, definitely keeping. You know the angles of football. Uh, well, in the days that I played, where the ball was a bit heavier and you know they couldn't swerve it so much as they do now, uh, I do feel for goalkeepers now because there's moments where it's just heart stopping for them. But you know the angles in that. But cricket, you know Wayne Daniel joined Middlesex, great fast bowler, played for a decade for Middlesex, was outstanding. But when he first joined it, I mean it could go anywhere. His radar was not great. Um, so you ended up being a goalkeeper, basically, standing back. Um, but, you know, at the end of it, I got a, 
got sponsorship with Sketchley, so I didn't really mind how far it went down the next side or offside. But <laughs> no, both of them were good fun. But yeah, the bravery of goalkeeping when I joined Arsenal, uh, you can probably remember this, Bob Wilson. You know, yeah. I think he let in something like eleven goals in a season. But Bob wouldn't go in feet first; he'd go in head first. Yeah, you know what I mean, and like you know, still a nice bloke. So <laughs> you know, but, yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a change game, and you know I enjoyed both of them. They're great fun, very good fun. Yeah, we, we know Bob well, of course. And uh, the thing is, that when you're an umpire, I mean, you coached, you played, you coached, and then you went on to umpiring. You can tell us a bit about why you decided to do that. But of course, when you're on the international list, you never umpire in England, do you? Basically, you're always umpiring abroad, and so the constant travelling is, is that why you decided to, to sort of quit the international list? That's exactly it. I love umpiring, you know, if I can be just transported to a ground and thrown over the white line, that would be me. I don't mind where it would be. You know, that was my stage. I loved all that. It was great fun. And the buzz of it, you know, 90,000 at Melbourne, absolutely sensational. But getting picked up, taken to Heathrow, you know, same, same, same and everything. And it just, it ground me down. And I thought, you know, I didn't want to lose the appetite for doing it. Um, And I really just, thought to myself, you know what, if you retire in England, that would be a fitting, you know, fitting time to go. Um, and that's what happened. You, you, admit fun, in, you do admit in the book, though, uh, Ian, that you, you kind of, it did take its toll mentally. You had to take a little oh. bit of time out of the game, didn't you? Yeah, that, no, that was, that was, a, it was a hard part to write. I mean, it was a hard part to go through. Um, it was something that if people know me and when they read the book, they will not, they will not believe it. You know, because that's not me. I'm a personality that's always out and, you know, charging about like a lunatic. But at that stage, I was lost. You know, I was absolutely lost. I was doing things that, you know, I was wondering afterwards, what, you know, why have you done that? And I was walking down the street. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I wanted to avoid people. And that was, I didn't see it coming. Honestly, I didn't see it coming. It was horrendous, but luckily the ICC uh, and more importantly, the ECB and even more importantly, Dennis Burns is my coach and a real good friend of mine, Michael Caulfield. Um, he was in the racing game, but now he's out of that and he deals with people like me um, for a living. You know, sat with me for a long, long period of time and I was very, very lucky to have that, massively lucky to have that. Now, one of the games that you did uh, take part in, you were the third umpire, was probably one of the most notorious games in cricket <laughs> history. I mean, people will walk, just want to read the book for that, I think. But uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. You were the third umpire in the uh, sort of Sandgate situation, weren't you? Yeah, I was third umpire in that. And, you know, I've, I've said this more than once. It was just a very surreal moment. You know, at the end of it, it's a bit like these guys that sit in that bunker at wherever it is doing the VAR. You know, you just sit there and sit there and nothing happens. And, you know, it's a very long day. At Test cricket, eight hours and you're sitting there. You know, it, it is long. It is a very long day. Maybe some things don't happen. But I remember that as it was yesterday. I mean, two weeks, or two years ago, last week, I believe, is that I was sitting there and we were just chit-chatting about with my match referee. We were chit-chatting about the past. Andy played for Zimbabwe. He was a very good player. We were just chit-chatting about his career and whatever. And he was reminiscing. And suddenly in my ear, in my earpiece, comes the director uh, Gunner, I've got some pictures for you to see. I said, all right, what are they? And he said, well, they're not table mounting, I can assure you. <laughs> so we went from that, and then he showed me the pictures, the, the initial pictures of someone running on the field of play, giving uh, Patrick, uh, Cameron Bancroft um, something. Nobody could pick it up what it was. And so straight away, I said, is that what you've got? And he said, yeah. So I waited till the end of the over, and I can tell you it was a bit like being a mastermind, the old big white light shining down on you. And I called into Nigel Long and Richard Lillingworth, two of the English umpires on the field, and I said, boys, uh, can you get together and get away from the players? Now, that's not a usual thing to be happening on a cricket field. So they walked away and said, what have you got for his gunner? I said, well, do you mind going asking Cameron Bancroft what he's got in his pocket? So they did you know, Nigel Long led it, Richard Edenworth went in with it, and they both stood there and asked Cameron. And he came out with one of these sunglasses cleaners, 
black one where you put your sunglasses in when you're not wearing them. So that was it. So they reported back that he had, you know, that was it. Well, lo and behold, a minute later, maybe two minutes later, Eddie, the director, comes back. He says, Gunner, I've got some more pictures for you. Okay, right, can you show me them? And obviously you see this where Cameron puts, well, I've still never worked this one out, Taps. He's put sandpaper down his trousers. Mm. I haven't worked this one out yet. I don't know why he's done this, but that must have been damn uncomfortable. <laughs> so we now, two overs later or an over later, I've had to get the boys back together and say, lads, get away from the players. I need to talk to you again. And now they're looking at the third umpire's box thinking I've completely lost the plot. So eventually I just say to them, right, can you now go and ask Cameron Bancroft what he's got down his trousers? It's not an easy thing to ask a male. And, well, we know the rest of the story. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the yellow sandpaper is sort of anonymous now. Yeah? I remember watching that live, Ian, and contacting Andy that day, and I've just watched the press conference after the allegations, oh. and they're sitting there laughing, and I'm thinking, they've got no concept of what they've done. It does beg the question, do you think maybe they, they, should, have been, they should have been kept in check a little bit earlier on? It wouldn't have come to this. Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've been on record, is that, you know, they, I felt that not only myself, but I'm only talking on behalf of myself, not the group, that they were just getting a little bit out of control. Um, you know, some things that were going on during games and conversations that were going on and, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't pleasant. But I think somewhere along the line, as umpires and referees, we let the game down by not stamping them down there and then. You know, it was two and a half years maybe before this all arrived. And, you know, when it did arrive, I think it shocked everyone, the severity of what what came out. I think that's true. But one of the joys, if we look more positive, one of the joys <laughs> of umpiring is the fact that you're 22 yards away from some of the greatest players who've ever played the game. I'm thinking of Virat Kohli, who gave you a hug, didn't he, after his last game? And that must be fantastic to watch those blokes close up like that. I think he gave me a hug to get rid of me. <laughs> but, no, you're right. 22 yards away from Sachin Tendulkar, Virat, Jack Callis, you know, Graham Smith, who you wouldn't pay a shilling to go and watch play, but you wanted to get your team. You know, <laughs> I was so, so, so lucky to watch those guys. The only heart-stopping bit is with Sachin. You know, you, know, you umpire Sachin in India, it is, oh, it's scary. You never want it. Never want a ball to hit his pads. Oh, no, please. <laughs> um, that's one thing you never wanted. You know, it's just, oh, it was scary. But, you know, I watched Saxon later part of his career, and I've seen now Virat from the start of his career. Two different players, but two super people. Absolutely fantastic people, but magnificent players. Absolutely magnificent players. You're not alone in that. We spoke to a Premier League referee once, and he said he, he, whenever he went to Old Trafford and Fergie was in charge, he'd have to he'd hate having to give a penalty early on if there was a, <laughs> a, a you know if it was against Man United very early on in the game or any point of the game. It, it was a it was a bit like that. Just one final one. There's been some talking about uh, neutral umpires and the fact that people aren't going to be able to travel as much, and we may if we are going to get some games on possibly behind closed doors, international cricket. Uh, we may we may not be in, have the luxury of that situation because people can't travel. Do you think that would be an issue? You think we're getting to the stage now where, where we don't necessarily need neutral umpires? Uh, look, I, the guys that are doing the job at the moment are the twelve of the best. There isn't anyone better at the moment. I've gone on record to say that you know well, I've had my time and everything like that. But if the ICC are clever enough, they'll get DRS worldwide. You know, every game would be completely DRS. You know, you have to do Australia versus India with 37 cameras, but then go and do Sri Lanka and Pakistan with 10. They've got to get it standardised right across the board. And I don't think then there'll be an issue because there's no bias in amongst those guys. You've just got to take the side of bias away. And I think the way that you can do this is take away umpires' call. So then there's no fear that Richard Kettleborough, who absolutely superb umpire 
to give an umpire's call to England but not to Australia. And it takes that away. And, you know, to me, I always wanted to do England versus Australia at Lords. I always want, you know, that's, the, that's your dream. And I think in the very near future, this will happen. And, you know, I'll be very proud to go and watch Richard Illingworth and Richard Kettleborough go out there. And they will not let anyone down. They, you know, it might be a bit nervy to start with, but oh. I think that I don't see a problem with it. There's some great, you know, the boys are great umpires. And yeah. They've one English at one end and an Aussie at the other. I don't see there being any issue whatsoever. And on the subject of Sam Papergate, here's Freddie Flintoff with his take. I can't believe that the old team isn't in on it. As a, as a bowler, if someone gives me a ball that's been tampered with, I know initially. And I think one of the things that Steve Smith did was, I think he took the blame for, for everyone else. And think, things like ball tampering have gone on for a long, long time. I think it's just the degrees of where you take it. You know, we was accused of putting sweets on the ball. You can put, you know, people put sun cream on it and tried everything they can. Sandpaper, you know, it's wrong, but it's, it's stupid more than anything. But the one thing which for me was, I can't believe that not everyone in that team was involved in some way, shape or form. Meanwhile, on Drive, both Adrian and Goffey were talking about Johnny Bairstow's 2017 autobiography. Today's book is Johnny Bairstow, A Clear Blue Sky, that he wrote with Duncan Hamilton, um, which uh, obviously is not that uh, old. 2017, it came out three years ago. And I've gone to a little peek. There's two little sections I want to read. And one, the first one is quite long, actually. But just so bear with me, but I think you'll appreciate why I'm reading it. Um, so Johnny Bairstow is at Yorkshire. When you were there, he comes through uh, at Yorkshire. And obviously his dad, uh, David, had passed away um, in tragic circumstances and Johnny had had to deal with all of this, brought up by his mum. I think his mum had cancer a couple of times and they got through that as a family. So, you know, he's, he's had a he's had a, a raw deal growing up. It's a t- been a tough upbringing for him and he's uh, found himself in the uh, Yorkshire squad and he gets onto the pitch for the first time. It's his uh, 13th man, actually, and there's a couple of players who have gone off for injury treatment. And it's against Surrey in August 2008, and he gets onto the pitch, and it's a massive moment for him. It's kind of underplayed. The name is read out. Nobody really says anything, and he's he's on the pitch as, like, 13th man. Um, so uh, he's just loving every second. But anyway, this is how it starts. Page 144. Darren Goff was in charge. In terms of effort, energy and approach, the belief that a faint heart never won a jot of anything, and also the absolute certainty that you could force a result simply through will and conviction, Goff could have feasibly belonged to my dad's side of the Bearstow clan. He was sure perspiration was the prerequisite for inspiration. My dad felt that way too. Goff was equally sure that you could encourage and cajole anyone into achieving anything, however far-fetched the scenario seemed at the time. My dad thought the same. He was also the sort of captain who regarded the front as the only place to be. Occupying it was a moral obligation to him. You couldn't possibly lead from anywhere else. Goff roused you to be better than you were, and he understood everything about the game except the cricketer who didn't attempt to give 210%. He always did, performing as a one-man battalion. That was another aspect he and my dad had in common. I've been told a score of times, and that's a very conservative estimate, that my dad and Goff were kindred spirits, so alike that each was pretty much a mirror image of the other in temperament. My dad was there for Goff's championship debut at Lords in 89, but made only another three championship appearances alongside him before his career petered out. If the two of them had belonged to the same generation, the impact of a Bairstow-Goff combination on Yorkshire could conceivably have been seismic. Those barren years of the 70s would never have happened. I wonder, though, how anyone else would have got a word in edgeways in the dressing room. <laughs> how brilliant is that? Well, I've, I've never read his book. I, you know I'm, I'm not one for reading other cricketers' uh, books because I find that there can be a lot of um, negative stuff in there and people say what they feel at the time when they don't really know that person. But that that is very um, emotional to actually listen to it because with David, he looked after me when I first came into the side. I'll never forget it. Um, and my dad, a couple of words my dad said to David when he took me down, because uh, we went down on a train for my debut, and he really looked uh, after me. He used to give you a bear brigade, and he was so strong, David Bairstow. He was short in stature and really stocky, um, and he used to give you a real hug. But he was an unbelievable character, a great cricketer for Yorkshire, and underrated for England, by the way. And the way Johnny, um, he'd be so proud of Johnny as an individual, the way Johnny came through from a young lad, a very talented rugby player and hockey player, by the way, Johnny Bairstow, 
amazing rugby player, an hockey player. And he come into the cricket. You know, I tried to get him involved as a real, real youngster. I got him on the pitch against Sri Lanka uh, when he was 12th man. I just wanted him to experience it. And I wanted to be on the same pitch as him because I managed to play with his dad. And then I got to play with Johnny. And he is a credit, a credit to his family. He's very close to his mum and his sister. He takes them everywhere. Um, and it was great to listen to that because having seen the way David played for the short time I, I played cricket with him, that was definitely the way I tried to, to play my game. And what I tried to get across to the cricketers within Yorkshire when I went back, because there was a very negative image around some of the players. They're thinking about, oh, we don't want to lose. We don't want to do this. I said, I'm not bothered if I lose. I'm not bothered if I lose. For me, it was about playing cricket, believing you can win every single game, to go out there and win the game. There's no thought about losing. There's no thought about drawing a game and getting away with a draw. I'd rather lose than draw. That was my p point when I went back about trying to change the belief in every single player's mindset. Because if you start thinking about drawing a game in cricket, you're going to draw the game. You think about winning it, and if you end up with a draw, so be it. And there were too many negative comments uh, from youngsters coming through. I don't know whether it had been just the after effects of what had happened before, whether it being on a bad, bad run, but it was all negative, negative. And I tried to change that mindset. And it's glad to see it was appreciated by a youngster coming through. A couple of quick questions. It is a lovely piece, actually. I was, I was uh, mm. very emotional reading it myself earlier. A couple of quick questions, because uh, we're running out of time. Um, do you remember where you put him in the field when he came on that day? Ram Prakash was Short about to Hundred, hundreds. Um, he says here. Hang on a second. Where is it? Um, Silly point or short leg? Stand next to me in the slips is what you said to him. Apparently, well, I can't remember. I thought you were pretty much short leg. I thought I'd know. <laughs> the other, the other thing leg. is, teach him a lesson. You'll, you'll confirm this. The chief prankster at Yorkshire was Anthony McGrath. Yeah. Uh, and get this. Uh, you may want to comment or not. And this is in the book, word for word. Johnny Bairstow says, you could sometimes pick a pair of socks out of your bag and discover that someone had cut the toes out of them. We suspected, but never conclusively proved that McGrath was the culprit. The Yorkshire Snipper. The Yorkshire Snipper lives on. Nobody knows who the Yorkshire Snipper is. We all have our sus uh, suspicions, but he has never, ever been found to this day. It's the long, longest ongoing saga in world sport. The Yorkshire Snipper. If he's ever caught, He's going to be bankrupt because it's going to cost him about two million quid in socks he's going to have to buy for every single pair of socks and underpants he cut over a two-year period. Wow. Did it happen to everybody? Obviously. Everybody. Did it even, well, coaches, did, was it you? managers, Darren direct, directors was it you? of cricket. It happened to director of cricket, coaches, captains, um, anybody. Uh, we, um, it even happened to the um, opposition on one occasion. <laughs> Which was ridiculous when you think about that. Um, while you're playing in the game after day one. So, yeah, it, it became quite a serious issue um, in the end. But whoever it was had some serious corners to keep doing it. To keep doing it. And then one day, just stopped. Okay, right. These are yes-nos. Was it you? No. Do you think it could have been McGrath? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever get really angry when it happened to you? No. <laughs> I just didn't wear socks. <laughs> it's fantastic. But well, I can uh, tell John... you a couple who did used to get really angry. David oh, Bias, Peter Hartley, his wife even came in the dressing room after the play and absolutely started shouting at everybody, saying, I'm buying him these expensive Kenton Kerwin socks. If anybody else cuts his socks, you're going to have to deal with me. Guess what happened that night? His socks get cut. No. So, yeah, I mean, oh. so whoever has serious, serious guts, <laughs> his wife came in the dressing room, gave us all an absolute telling to because somebody were cutting his socks and there were Kenton Kerwin's one. They were about eight quid a pair at the time. This was 20 oh. years ago, 25 years ago. That is just brilliant. The Yorkshire snipper, Johnny Bairstow. Uh, thinks it was Anthony McGrath. Um, Goffey's not quite sure. Still don't know. Unsolved mystery. Well, listen, there's a few. Uh, there's, it's between Alex Morris, Gavin Hamilton, Richard Blakey, Anthony McGrath. The, it's one of them. I'm absolutely convinced it's one of them. <laughs> Brilliant. Are they, if they want to own up, 
then the number is here, 08717 If after all these years you finally want to own up to cutting the toes out of the socks, cutting the underpants, being the Yorkshire snipper, then please get it. Now is the time oh, it to would do be it. brilliant. If they did it now, listen, all's forgiven. All's forgiven. This is lockdown. For you to come on and admit that you are the snipper would be brilliant. It would be... It will be groundbreaking, this. It will be fantastic. It's gone on. It's been in so many autobiographies. It's become a world-famous figure. Or does he never, ever want to get caught? Well, what we'll do is, if um, we will stop programming, whatever we're doing, we will stop and we will go to the call if the culprit wants to call in. 08717 But Johnny Bairstow's book, Clear Blue Sky, good Good emotional read at times. Really, really hard to read at times in, in an emotional way. So anyone with any information about the Yorkshire Snipper, well, you know where to contact. On breakfast, meanwhile, the gang were joined by former England captain and Sky Sports pundit Nasser Hussain to talk about virtual and real cricket. How, how, how did you come to picking your team, Nash? you just got a few mates in there, haven't you? Uh, yeah, well, look, well, I would have struggled to get 11 then, Fred, as you know. But, um, <laughs> We've already said that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it came down to, I'm going to call him your mate Key every time in this interview, if you don't mind. Your mate Key has always told us in the commentary box that um, our era, my era, the 90s, were absolutely rubbish. The worst era for English cricket ever, and his era was absolutely stunning and that's why he only played three or four test matches or something I don't know I don't know how you can call the month of January 2001 an era but that was Key's era Um, and we played against each other we picked our sides there were a few discrepancies because obviously I wanted you Freddie because you played under me but Keezy was not having oh, any of that. Nass, big mate, Nass, Freddie. Jimmy Nass, fell Nass, in both Nass. eras. Swanee fell a bit in both eras. Uh, so it was quite tricky. But I think in the end, we both got the sides we wanted. Yeah, I was going to say you want me now, but you didn't want me 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I loved you, Fred. You know that. I absolutely loved you. I might have accidentally on the vodcast called you, Harmy. And Keezy, the axis of evil. I, I might have accidentally oh, spit that out. I actually the axis of uh, evil. I don't know where evil came from. <laughs> NASA, what was he like to captain and how difficult did he make your job at times? Uh, I'll say the nice bit first. He, <laughs> he was absolutely a joy to captain on the field. He, he would run through a brick. I remember bowling him in India and I literally could not. It was like 38 degrees in every test match. And I wanted someone to, like, bounce Sachin Tendulkar. And there was this young lad from Lancashire that I'd never really known that well, to be honest, in Freddie. And he would run through a brick wall. I could not get the ball out of his hand. He would keep going, keep going. In the end, I think he got injured because I bowled him so much into the ground. Um, he was... He was uh, unusual to captain in those uh, early days. Him and his mate, Key and Harmison, they would be standing in the dressing room giggling at the back at any speech I made. I don't know, in, my, in Key's first test, he somehow managed to get Rob Key in at slip next to him, which even to this day, I can't work out how Key was in at second slip with Andrew Flintoff, although they did cover about five slips between them, if I remember. Nasser, can you tell us about the time you lost your rag with Fred against Sri Lanka? Which time was that? (laughs) (laughs) What one stands out for you? I can't remember, Lucy. Um, Oh, the Murali. Yeah, there there we were trying. I don't know which tour it was. It was one of the many tours in Sri Lanka. And we had literally... Murali was the greatest, you know, spinner to play against at that time with Shane Warne, and he was spinning it both ways, and none of us had a clue against him. And we had this policy of just see off Murley. So we batted for like 80 overs against Murley, just like lost two wickets and just ground him into the dirt. And then we were really pleased with ourselves. And then Murley comes out to bat. And I looked down at his bat and I said, oh, that looks uh, like one, one of Freddie's bats. He said, it doesn't look like one of Freddie's bats. It is Freddie's bat. And Freddie lent him his bat and then Murley smashed us for 50 um, with Freddie every little snigger. So I, I did go to Freddie and say, why are you lending their opposition off spinner one of your bats to smash us around? I might have used some what? choice words as well. Oh, there was a few choice words. The worst thing about that was, Nas, me and Murley in the early days had this deal 
I wouldn't bowl bouncers if he didn't bowl Dusha as the one that spins the other way. And you brought me on to try and hit him, and I refused to bowl any bouncers. I just kept bowling full, which your head was shaking so much, and I think the cap was removed from your head at one point and thrown on the ground. But it was all passion, wasn't it, Nice? It was all passion. We misunderstood it. We were so professional. People listening to this now <laughs> must think, Clarky, was it a club game? Lending the oppo your bat and not bowling your mate a bouncer. No wonder we were rubbish in the 90s. <laughs> but looking at, looking at your team, there's one name which stands out on there. One name, and he works on TalkSport on Drive. And he was the one person you treated differently to everyone else, Darren Goff. You used to love having Goffey in your team, didn't you? I did. Uh, I, I have to admit, I had a soft spot for Goffey. Um, you know, again, massive heart. You know, he just would love... He knew where every single camera was in the ground. His first head would turn. You know, we had that speed gun in those days when they had the speed gun at the side. He didn't care how well the ball went down. All he was worried about was if he was bowling quicker than anyone else. Um, Goffey was an absolute star to captain. He, you know, that, uh, on a serious note, going back to that era, you had injuries. Um, Goffey had injuries. Simon Jones, what a bowler he was. Yeah. He had injuries. Caddick, Angus Fraser, all those bowlers that were around of that era before central contracts. Uh, if we could have looked after that bowling, I think Goffey said the other day on one of the podcasts on Sky, if he could have played more with the likes of Cork and Headley and Fraser and Flintoff, etc., if we'd all stayed fit, I think we'd have been a better side back then. Mm. Nash, can I ask you, mate, can I come in? I want to ask you, I watched you on Sky uh, a, a wee while ago. You did a, a, a documentary, well, certainly an interview with A.B. de Villiers, right? And I, I, I can't tell you, I thought it was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I can still remember watching him that, that his particular one day innings where he just battered, he just went for it, and it was one of the best innings I've ever seen in my life. But the point I'm going to ask you, I couldn't believe the quality all round sportsman. Whether it was a golf club, a tennis racket, I believe he played rugby as well. Is it, was he just one of these guys that was absolutely fantastic at everything? Yeah, we went over to Pretoria and did a piece with him, and the word you got from everyone was when he was young, he could literally play any sport he was one of those freaks that you know was in the rugby team two years before his time uh, like you say squash um, golf cricket everything he was a phenomenal he's also a blooming nice bloke as well which really annoys you um, he is a bit of a freak he's a little bit like Joss Butler or Joss Butler's a little bit like him that he's so talented some of these modern cricketers I don't know how football's gone Ali I was watching some of the highlights the other day on BBC of the the cup semi-finals, and the first thing I thought of was that those players wouldn't stay on the field for 90 minutes nowadays with some of the tackles flying in. But one thing I will definitely say about cricket is the standard of batting in particular, some of the white ball hitting with the likes of de Villiers and Butler and Morgan and Coley and Dhoni and all these guys, they are absolute freaks. I don't know if Freddie agrees, but some of the hitting nowadays and the quality... It's just beyond belief, really. Yeah, I must admit, I could hit the ball a decent amount. Of, but then you see these lads now, they just hit it so far. It's it's a different game. But just a quick one, Nash, before you go, what's going to happen with cricket? I, I can't believe how much I'm missing it this summer. Turning on the TV, watching you and Keezy and the lads all over the country. But have you got any whispers of where we're going with it? Or have you got a theory? No, no whispers. I think everyone's just waiting like yours with uh, all the sports, really, to find out what the government are going to say. And it's all on government advice. Uh, We were going to obviously, you know, ECB were going to launch their flagship tournament, the 100 uh, this summer. You know, that must be in serious doubt. That needs a world class players um, which aren't going to travel. They can't travel. And B, it needs crowds. And, you know, I can't see them playing with massive crowds in, in the near future. So the best we can hope for is maybe some test matches behind some behind closed doors, some T20 blast cricket. Um, I think we'd take whatever we are given at the moment, Freddie, yeah. to be honest. You're right. It's not until something's taken away that you realise how important it is. <laughs> Weekends are long. There's only so much gardening you can do and cooking. I've done the dishwasher 27 times already today. <laughs> um, it's so, life is so dull without sports. So, um, you know, it is... It is uh, depressing place at the moment but 
I'm guessing the health of the nation is far more important, but I think people will want sport back on their screen pretty soon. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Back over and drive, Adrian and Goffey were revisiting another classic sporting moment, this time with Surrey and England legend Alex Stewart. Well, he's got four here. Short ball, typical Alex Stewart stroke. Well, he's put that one away as well. He hit that even harder. Nice shot from Alex Stewart, and that'll go for four. That's it. Alex Short's got his 100. Kensington rising to him. And on this, his 31st birthday, he couldn't have wanted a better present to have given to himself. Stewart on strike. Hooked away. Now that'll go very quickly, very fine. And Stewart is now six runs away from three figures. And there it is! Alex Stewart has become the first Englishman a century in each innings of a test match against the West Indies that's another lovely shot I think it's beaten him away four more that's a lovely shot again I think that's four more so Ambrose is going round the park three fours in an over he doesn't like it that's a superb shot Adams is out on the leg side boundary but he only moved about five meters before that rocketed into the boundary wall got him that's the end of alex stewart so finally the surrey man's resistance is over really has been the most marvelous innings by alex stewart but the entire crowd here at kensington on their feet applauding this magnificent innings Well, let's set the scene here. England on tour in the West Indies, 1994. They've lost the series, haven't been bowled for 46 in Port of Spain in the third test, chasing 194 to win. Alex Stewart top scored with 18. England then were beaten by a West Indies board 11, heading to the fourth test in Barbados. And that's when Alex Stewart gave us all a bit of pride with centuries in each innings. First man to do it against the West Indies and a victory for England. And the man himself, Alex Stewart, is with us live on Drive, on TalkSport. Alec, how are you doing? I'm very well, Adrian. How are you going, mate? 
Yeah, yeah good. we're it's all great good. to have you on, mate. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely magnificent. I'll tell you what, we should do that for everyone, especially batsmen. Just play the high low, and every highlight is when they hit a four or a six. <laughs> and then, the only thing that surprised me about those that highlights package is they actually got you getting out. That's very rare. <laughs> on an highlights package. There he is, he's gone. Alex Stewart bowled. If they would have said 140, three at the oh, end right. of it. The game's a great leveller. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say though, Alec, I was watching watching uh, those highlights of the innings, both oh, innings, amazing. this morning, and the the shot selection, the stroke play, it looked effortless, was it? Oh, I don't know about that. When you're playing against the likes of Walsh and Ambrose, it was tough. It was a brilliant pitch. I'll, I'll, I must say that it was a quick pitch, but a an even bounce pitch, and I didn't mind playing a short ball. So you know, when you play against the West Indies, they do test you out up top a little bit. So it allowed me to play the pull and the hook and a couple of tips off my toes. But I'll always say to people, you know, the highlights when you just listen to them or watch them earlier, they will show obviously your good shots. Don't worry, there's plenty of playing and missing and great balls from those two brilliant bowlers in Walsh and Ambrose. But I'm happy to listen to the uh, to the highlights until I got bowled out. <laughs> Absolutely, and listen. We all we all know. I mean, that was your reputation. We played again the cut shot, the pull shot. Uh, someone you like to do against the quicks. That's why they picked you in 1990. I thought you would have been picked against Australia just before that, but you got in again in 1990. You made the debut against the West Indies, didn't you, with Patterson, Marshall, Walsh, and Bishop. Now that is one hell of a uh, bowling attack. And the reason I brought that up: Did it actually help you going back to the West Indies, knowing you'd been there on a previous tour? Yeah, it did to an extent, Dazzler, to be honest. I mean, going out there for the first time, um, you know, the same when you made your debut as well against New Zealand, you're going into the unknown a little bit. So mm. the 1992 tour really opened my eyes. You know, I played domestic cricket for Surrey and, and had done pretty well and earned the right to, to be selected for England. But then when you go up a level and play against the greats, it was suddenly, am I good enough? You know, and there were still questions. I was asking questions, let alone anyone else of myself. Can I play at this level? And it probably took me the best part of 10 test matches to realise that potentially I could. And then obviously I then kicked on. And by that first two, I mean, I got gloved off by Ian Bishop. Um, that was a ball that, listen, I hadn't faced too many like that. A glove one in front of my nose to second slip. And it was sort of welcome to test cricket. You're playing with the big boys. Um, but then you do, you do adjust. Um, you up your own game. You adjust. You work hard. So eventually you then can be one of the better players, um, and you hope in time that the bowlers fear the batter as against the other way around. We're talking about centuries in each innings in, in, in this fourth test, and it is an amazing achievement. But you got out the same way, didn't you? You played on in, in both both times, did you? How frustrating was that? Oh, yeah, I, I, I got inside edge. I think they'd just taken the second new ball in the first innings. Uh, first innings, got inside edge off Winston Benjamin. In the second innings, I went to... Uh, to run the ball down, which was pretty careless, and got an inside edge back onto my stumps. Remember, Sir Jeffrey Boycott saying to me, "You played well, but don't play a shot like that, you idiot." There's a bit of colourful language in between as well. Um, but no, it was it was uh, the, the, the second innings was a. Uh, oh, I'm playing well, and I, I was too. I gambled too much and paid the biggest penalty. I tell you what, though, to all the places you can go play, and we played in some magnificent places in Melbourne, in Sydney, uh, with the crowd. But when you go to Barbados um, and, and England fans, they come in their thousands, don't they, to watch that test? Oh. Did, did it feel, in, even in '94, um, did it feel like it was an home test match? Hundred percent. Listen, we, as David said earlier, we'd, we'd just been bowled out for 46 in Trinidad um, when, when the game you should have won. So you get rolled for 46. I mean, Ambrose bowled one of the best spells of his career. Then you turn up, you're 3-0 down, going to a ground where I think West Indies hadn't lost in Barbados since 1930-something, 35, I think, from memory. And you go out to bat, and Mike Lathen and myself open a batting. And as we walk down those six or seven steps from the dressing room onto the field of play, the ground erupted. Um, and it was, it was very much 50-50 or 60-40 even in, in favour of England fans, because it's a brilliant island anyway to go for mm. holiday. And then obviously all the fans had booked before they knew we, uh, we were 3-0 down. Um, but what was amazing in that, we actually put on 171 um, for the opening partnership um, in the first inning. But when we got, um, Atter's got a ball and he clipped it off his toes, went for two and the ground erupted, or half the ground erupted. And I think we haven't put on 50. And all we'd done, we'd gone past 46. 
and the crowd in their own black <laughs> It was as though we just won the game, but all we've done is got the 47. So uh, it was it was one of those much surreal moments. Yeah, English humour. That is very brilliant. Best, yeah. I love that. They were in the in the first innings. You talk about the uh, partnership with Atherton. The second innings, there were partnerships with Hick and and Graham Thorpe. Is is there? A, did you have a favourite partner when you were out there batting? Yeah, well, I enjoyed opening the batting. So I obviously enjoyed opening with Graham Gooch when I first started opening. Then thoroughly enjoyed opening with Athers. Um But Graham Thorpe, especially because of. I batted a lot with him at Surrey. He had a really good understanding, running between the wickets. We knew our game inside out, so we could help each other if things weren't quite going right. Plus, he's a Chelsea fan as well, so we had a lot in common. But no, batting with Graham Thorpe um, was a real favourite for me. Uh, when you look at those players, Al, and you've been asked this many, many times, and uh, you must get sick of it, and I know you do, but when you, when you look at your career, and you look back, and you played all those test matches, but you 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 you're up and down that batting order, weren't you? I mean, it was ridiculous. What one minute you were at one, two, uh, you've been at three. I think you've been four, four. You've probably been every number between one and seven, haven't you? I have, I have, hundred percent. And and by choice, honestly, I'd much rather just open throughout my whole career um, without blowing my own trumpet as, as an opener. You know, I had a had a good record. Um, but because we didn't have an all-rounder, and, and I've said it before, you know, once Siri and Botham retired, England tried to find an all-rounder. You know, someone who can bat <laughs> ideally in the top six or top seven, and then also be a frontline bowler. And we couldn't. We tried plenty and couldn't. Um, which meant, you know, poor Jack Russell, one of my best mates in the game, um, was the one who was sacrificed because he was, you know, world-class wicketkeeper, batting around about eight. So he used to leave him out and ask me to keep wicket. Um, just so they could get an extra bowler in the team. Mm. And in a way, you know, I, I reckon England, they weakened the strength, which was me opening with Athers, to try and strengthen the weakness, i.e. trying to find an all-rounder. Um, but it's how it was. You played in the 90s, Dad. You, listen, the selectors and the selection policy was ridiculous. Um, and, and you just couldn't trust what they were going to do. So it was hard work for everyone. Mm. I was going to ask you about that because I, we had a chat about this on Sky, didn't we? And, and we look at it, and, and I, people always ask me, I think the 90s gets a bad rap, actually. I thought it was a great decade of cricket. Some great cricketers all around the world. You played Pakistan, you knew you were in a serious battle. Uh, Australia, obviously New Zealand, Zimbabwe were even an unbelievable team, really. And they used to get the mickey taken out in the 90s. But they could beat anyone on the day. They had some fantastic oh. cricketers. And it bugs me when 90s cricket gets bagged by uh, some cricketers and we were better than actually some of the criticism we've taken over the years oh yeah listen and it is you you play in 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 your era and you're always going to support it and protect it um but we also you have to remember we came up against early 90s at the end of the west indies dominance and then we encountered the best australian side perhaps the best side that's ever played the game so you're going to rival clive lloyd's team of the late 70s 80s even that Australian invincible side of 48. They were that good with Warren, McGrath, the wars and everyone else. And then, as you say, you know, Pakistan, Wakar Yunus, Wazim Akram. You had South Africa with Donald, Pollock, McMillan. They were just some very, very good sides about, which we continually played. And we we probably had 11 straight 12 very good cricketers. But because of the system... We very rarely were able to play the very best eleven at any one time because of injuries. We didn't have central contracts and everything else. So, you know, please don't think these are excuses. These are facts mm. which had oh, a real impact facts. on how we did or didn't play. And it also, we were discussing this the other day, Goffy, weren't we, about how the central contracts are, are kind of changing um, cricketers' stats, um, bowlers and, and batsmen, just completely changing them. So in, in the test arena, there's more tests being played and um, and they're fitter and playing more tests as well. So those figures are going to look look good by comparison, aren't they? Oh, 100%, AD. I mean, you think now, you know, you've got Broad and Anderson, they've both played 130-plus test matches each. Back in the 90s and, and before that, you know, Goffey, what did you play, Goffey? 58. Yeah, 58. So with central contracts, he wouldn't have been bowling for Yorkshire then two days later playing for England, finishing a test match and the next day bowling for Yorkshire again. 
I'd have played 158. <laughs> I was going to say, you, 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 would, you could have done. You'd have certainly played 100 because you wouldn't have had those injuries because of the amount of bowling you had to do and the, and the lack of rest and, and recuperation. But you move with the times. You know, the best thing that's happened to England is central contracts. And these players, and I'd say Gordon Anderson, are perfect examples of why they've worked so well. When you put, Stewie, um, during the 90s, uh, right, just a quick one on that is... Is, but obviously the, the West Indies, they were gradually slowing down. Yeah, the, the, it's the batting that slowed down. They still had Walsh and Ambrose, who were still were fantastic. And Kenny and Benjamin in the early, uh, Winston and Kenny Benjamin, who were fantastic bowlers in the early 90s. But out of all the tours you went on in the 90s, which one sticks in your mind and thought, that was a fantastic tour? Was it where you got back-to-back hundreds, even though we lost the series, or was there somewhere else that was special? Well, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because, yes, from an individual point of view, Barbados will always stand out. Mm. But we were already 3-0 down. We'd lost the series. And I'm all about winning. Winning test matches, winning series. Yeah, we won a test match. We just took it to 3-1. And then we drew the last win when Lara got 375. So I, I love touring Australia. Um, you know, I like the way they play their cricket. Big respect for them. Um, but I played the Seven Ashes series and lost all seven. So though I like going to Australia, um, it was tough, hard. But I kept getting beaten. You know, you went out there, Daz, and you got your hat-trick and, and the Australians loved you because they saw some Australian in you, in the way you went about it. But now give me an Australian tour or a West Indies tour and I'll take that every day of the week. Let's go back to Barbados. I just want to read you a little section uh, from uh, Curtly Ambrose's book, and it's about the the Barbados uh, test where you scored those centuries. This is is what he says in his book. This was Stuart's game, and I always respected him for being a fighter. I realised it was going to take some work to get him out in Barbados, so I tried to play on his patience because he got fed up if the boundary balls dried up. Started to bowl just wide of off stump and dry up the runs, but he played very well, stuck around. It was a courageous and deserved win for England. I was impressed with the character they showed. There's some amazing words from mm-hmm. Kirtley Ambrose there. Yeah, well, listen, he, he's right up there with the best bowlers um, I played against. You know, I've, I've said Marshall, Malcolm Marshall and, and Wazzy Macram, the two very, very best. And then Ambrose is, is in that next line. But, I mean, first up, he's a great person. You know, very nice words and really appreciate you reading that out. But he, he's a great bloke. He's not such a good bloke he's 22 yards away with a cricket ball. But off it, he, you know, people say he's a man of few words or he's moody. I promise you, he's anything but. Goffey will tell you that, oh. you know. Away from the actual cricket field, in the dressing rooms, if you see him socially, he's always wanting a laugh and he's giggling and, he, and he, he's larger than life, despite being six foot plenty. Um, but no, lovely words, but oh, such... Massive respect for him because, as I say, wonderful bowler, but a great bloke. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 100%. When you play against him, if you've not spoke to him, you think, oh, he's a bit arrogant, isn't he? And you don't want to even look at him because he looks at you with those eyes, doesn't he? And, mm. and he pulls his, like, tongue out and you think, oh, dear me, I'm not, I'm not messing with him. <laughs> but then you meet him. You meet him after the game and he's just, like, so softly spoken. He just wants yeah. to have a laugh and joke. Uh, and and he's it. totally different, yeah. And that's what you've got to try and do, and I think, in any sport, any ball club. You know, when, when you play, you, know, you have your opposition. You've got to break him down and, and work out, actually, there are only human beings are just the same as everyone else. Now, they might be highly talented, but at the end of the day, they'll still have worries, they'll still have concerns, they'll still be nervous going on the field. Um, but that's why, you know, don't build them up too much. Respect them, but don't build them up and be scared of them. Um, and I think that's, you know, it can go for any sport at all. Having said that, mind, when we played the test match, it was abandoned in Jamaica in Sabina Park in 90, I think it's 1998. Game only lasted 56 minutes. Because um, the game was abandoned because it was so dangerous. But face, facing Walsh and Ambrose there, that isn't something I enjoyed. It was the only time in my whole career, as much as I've said I've, I enjoyed the challenge of playing quick bowling, but that test match there, or those 56 minutes, is the only time I knew I was going to get hit. It's just a question of how many times and how badly. I didn't, were you not out then? Yeah, now you've brought it up. Nine not out, mate. No, no, so and that counts on the stats, didn't it? Even though we yeah, were abandoned. I'm sure of that. I'll probably because there was talk. Oh, the game's been abandoned. I think the test match has ever been abandoned because of a dangerous pitch. And Athers, Nasser, and Mark Butcher have all got out, <laughs> and they're all trying to say, no, this shouldn't count in their records. But I wanted to claim the nine runs to help my career. No, so, no, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were, were you actually scared? It, it was. Scared. I just knew I was going to get hit. You know, I didn't. I never wanted to show fear. I never wanted to show that the bowler had the better of me. But it was that unfair a contest. Um, and again, if you go on um, YouTube or whatever and just key in 
I think it's worst test pitch ever. It comes up, and you watch the highlights. How I didn't get, I got hit in the gloves, um, hit on the chest a few times and that. But if it had carried on any longer, someone would have been seriously hurt. Don't worry about that. But thankfully, common sense prevailed, and they called it off. I'll tell you what, Alec, when you look back on that 94 tour, when you were playing in it, and you know we'd lost the series, you'd, you'd lost the series 3-0, I'd not yet played a test match here, but did you think during that tour that there were going to be changes after it? Because England were going through a period there where they had good players, but they just were losing matches, weren't they? The 93, 94, it just wasn't, something wasn't clicking, was it? I just think the problem was the selectors were always looking for the, for the magic potion of getting the best 11. They weren't ever giving them players enough chance. And, you know, nowadays you talk about, you know, give the player one test match too many than one test match too few. Back then, mm. if you had one bad test match or one bad innings with battle bolt, you were jettisoned. Well, any chance of trying to create a team, team spirit, team environment was hopeless because you probably had six players consistently playing and then the other five, you're thinking, well, I'll introduce myself to him because I'll see him this game. But if he doesn't do any good, I won't see him the next game. And the whole thinking was so poor um, by the selectors that we never gave ourselves a chance of, of trying to be consistent and consistently successful. Uh, Alec, let me ask you about what's going on this summer. It's very difficult times, challenging times for everybody. And um, I hope you and yours are staying well uh, during this crisis. But in terms of, of Surrey and domestic crickets, what do you think is going to be happening this summer, if anything? Listen, I hate guessing because I'd much rather have the answers. But, you know, at the moment, from our point of view, all our lads are, are trained. You know, some counties have furloughed their players. We haven't. And because we want our players to keep training individually at home in safe environment to make sure that when we do get the thumbs up, they're as, as good to go as possible. But honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, it looks like I think the other sports will potentially take a lead from the Premier League. Um, you know, that they obviously got the finances and they can get the testings done if there are testings. One is that are foolproof and also that the NHS or whatever will release those testings to sportsmen as against those who really need them in the hospitals and everything else. So, you know, we all want to play. You know, there's how you guys have continued producing and presenting excellent shows with no live sport is a real credit to mm. you both. But we all want to see live sport. Well, we see anything, the earliest I think we'll see anything is July. Um, and again, that is only a guess because one is lockdown has got to finish. It's got to be a safe environment to then probably have ideally four weeks, but I think it will be three weeks of, let's call it a mini pre-season. Um, and then can we go into game situation? But we're just sitting tight because in, until we're told that lockdown is finished and we can start, say, this social distancing, you know, talking about two metres apart, you just think of cricket. You know, you've got the umpire stood there next to the batter, the bowler runs past him, the keeper's standing up to the stumps to a spinner. So that's why we've got to be as proactive as we can. But I also think it's vitally important to take a sensible view and a long-term view. There's no point going back in any sport. Premier League, you know, looks like they'll be going back first. But imagine if you go back, you rush it back, and inside the first week, someone uh, tests positive or goes down with the symptoms of coronavirus, and then everything comes to a standstill again. So... We've got to kick-start it, but in, a, I think, a sensible, controlled mm. way. What that looks like, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll leave that to the professors and the experts. And last but not least, the Surrey all-rounder Ricky Clark was on with Laura Woods, Freddie and Ali to talk about what he's hearing on the county cricket circuit and about a near-miss for Laura. And Clark, it's Fred. With, with the cricket, what, what's going on? What, what are you hearing? Are people talking about the start of the season are you trying to get ready for the start of it? Do you know anything, Clarky? No, nothing, mate. Um, it's just a case of um, lads trying to do the best they can to, to keep themselves um, as fit as possible. And, and then basically it's just a, a case of waiting to see if and when we go back. And then um, I imagine that if something does come about, there need to be, like again, again like a little mini pre-season. Um, you know, we're trying to do the best we can to see where we can go with with uh, fitness wise but it's just a case to see how we are Ricky I was going to ask you mate a lot of the footballers for example when they when their clubs can send them 
their own kind of fitness regime and things they've got to do, whether it's out for a run or do a circuit and things like that. Is it very much the same with the cricket lads? Because will they be sent out different fitness schedules or, or will they all get sent out the same one? Because in football it's kind of different. Clearly, you're, I don't know, maybe your midfield midfield players will need to run a little bit longer than the strikers and things like that and the centre-half backs might do more weights. Is it very much the same in cricket or do you all have your own individual sort of fitness regime? Um, you, you have your own sort of individual programs that's specific to you. Um, but more or less, there's, there's certain sessions that come out. Like we have running sessions on Wednesdays where you know they ideally want us to get out and do some sprinting, a bit of turning as well, just to, to keep those ticking over. Um, so yeah, I suppose the only problem we've got, we've been asked to, the bowler's been asked to try and get a bowling. Um, I think I saw Stuart Broad yesterday. He's got a nice big garden. He's got a nice net that he can bowl into. Um, <laughs> not sure my garden's going to allow my run up to uh, to uh, <laughs> allow me to do that. Um, so it's just uh, a case of trying to keep the body really ticked over, I suppose, for if and when we we go back. And what about batting, Clark? Yeah, you, you, you got a net up? Have you got a net up? Or are you hitting balls? Are you practicing in the mirror? What are you doing? <laughs> No, I keep on, I keep on getting skittled by my, my young six-year-old when he's bowling in the garden. So um, I sort of like put the bat away for a little bit. <laughs> Talking of which, uh, Clarky, I used to do um, the the in-stadium announcing. I guess you'd, you'd call it the in-stadium presenting for the Vitality series at Surrey, and it was a couple of seasons ago actually. And and you went into bat. And I was standing just on around the outside, just in front of where the fans are sitting. And um, you hit a big six, didn't you? Tell us what happened. Well, basically, yeah, um, I think you were quite unlucky because I actually middle one that day. Um, it's the first one in about Are you a batting cocky? I thought it was your bowling. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a couple of games after. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, and I've, I've hit this ball and I was batting with Ollie Pope and literally it all happened in like slow motion and we can just see this ball just literally going straight for Woodsy's head and she's managed just to literally sit down at the point it's gone past, and we're talking like a second, and it would literally hit her on the back on the back of the head. And uh, in fairness, would the level one of um, cricket safety is always face the game, and I think right. you're facing the crowd. Yeah. Up a little bit. I was just having a little chat with the crowd behind me. Do you know the, the figures as well? Is is I had no idea. I didn't. I didn't know how close they came at all. And there was a the the kind of concrete wall just behind me that separates where I was to where the crowd was sitting. And it left a crack, left a dent in in the wall just behind my head, and I couldn't believe it. And it was only when I saw you afterwards, I think that I that I realised how serious it was. It could have been really serious. Yeah, it, it was one of those moments where Ollie Pope and I were just watching this ball, and as I said, it's in slow motion. We just had our hands on our head, just like praying that it was just going to miss you, and luckily it did. <laughs> I live to tell the tale. That's it for the following on podcast. We will be back in a few days' time with more of a wrap-up of all the cricket chat that takes place across the TalkSport network. But for now, thanks for listening. Please continue to do so on Acast, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is the following on podcast from TalkSport.
The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 